0: Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income credit currency and commodities strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC Research Team. Welcome to
1: the FIC Focus Podcast. My name is Ira Jersey. I am the Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, the research arm of Bloomberg LP. On this podcast, we're going to be talking about the macro environment and cross-asset allocation with Ben Emmons, who is a Managing Director of Global Market Strategy at Medley Advisors. Ben, thanks for coming back on the FIC Focus Podcast. Hi, Ira. Thank you very much for having me. So as we talk about the macro environment, Ben, uh, you know, Talk to me a little bit about um, how commodities feed into that because obviously we've seen a significant amount of inflation, some of that's been because of supply chain issues. but obviously commodities and input costs are on the top of a lot of people's minds, particularly when they're thinking about how to value some of the, um, the you know some, some of the credit and equity assets that, uh, that we all invest in. So, um, so so maybe a little overview of how
0: you're thinking about commodities right now with maybe a little bit of a focus on oil. Yeah, indeed, as we just, uh, as we're speaking, the OPEC plus uh, meeting is on the way and it's all about the spare capacity uh, issue that I think is not only the energy markets that are affected by it, but commodity markets in general because of the Ukraine war having such a major shock and that ripples through the different commodities. And so I think when you uh, think of a supply chain and limited supply, Um, That that is impacting energy credits is impacting energy equities, but it's also putting the focus on consumer discretionary um, side of the of the stock market, which has been on a major pressure of late. Uh, And people think that, you know, as we continue to go up with commodity prices. This will be the precursor of eventually ending up in a recession because you know it it becomes inflation becomes in inhib- a to growth where cannot people can no longer afford the basic goods or not enough of it, and there's going to be real significant pain. I think we're coming down to is that well, there's three things to think about it one um is the Kamali rally leading us to this this ultimate outcome of a stagflation? I think financial markets are certainly uh, trading it or trying to price it, but there's limited experience in the markets, you know, of people that have been around when there was actual stagflation and, you know, unemployment is not yet to show significant increase. So it stays still on the side of that commodity prices feeding into a stagflation outcome is more about just inflation rising. Therefore inflation hedges like materials, uh, energy and, and, and commodity-related uh, equity sectors do better in that environment. Uh, secondly, it's the inflation itself, as you related to the Fed and other central banks. You know, you saw the Bank of Canada yesterday coming up with a quite a hawkish statement, I think really responding to their domestic price pressures are just getting, in their view, further, further out of control. They have to move faster. So that is an element in the market, again, like the pause that we went through last week, That whole debate, yes, the genie is out of the bottle uh, that Bostock has done twice now uh, with tapering and and the 50 base point hike now with the pause. But by far not that the commodity price rally that we're seeing is going to lead to a central bank tightening pause, I think, unless it leads to this major recession that follows. Uh, And lastly, I think it's also about the micro picture. People look at, at commodity prices as um, maybe a broad macro trend the China shutdown having that effect on that as it reopens again that's true. China will have pent up demand that show up in coal will show up in iron ore and likely show up in energy as well but it's also about the, the the micro picture in in the economy if 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 you think about all these grocery stores or you're thinking about other companies in the in the food supply chain there's winners or losers there. We, we call it mainly a K-shaped recovery that's you know, re-emerging. You see winners from that commodity trade, but you also see big losers, and that was showing up in recent retail earnings, for example. So I look at commodities that way. It's a broad, big trend of upward price pressure of ongoing uh, rally that I think is not stopping at any moment in time, even though there's risk of recession and or the dollar gets too strong. On the other hand, it's also very much of a story of that uh, yes, it could be a stagflation outcome. It could be a faster tightening cycle, even of what we're experiencing, and it is a micro picture of a K-shaped recovery within the stock market.
1: So, so let's. Focus a little bit more on the stock side of things. So when we talk about you know things like oil prices going up, that obviously hits the consumer at the pump, where they have less discretionary um, money to actually spend because they have to still spend money on, on gasoline. And while electrification continues, there's been a slowdown. I mean, just anecdotally, you know, I went to go look for a, a vehicle for for my uh, for, for my family uh, recently, and uh, recently, as in this past weekend, and yeah. it turns out that you know there's no inventory, and we can't even buy a hybrid because because they they're not available right now except with a 6 to 8 month lag right so so and and we need a vehicle now not you know not 8 months from now so but but we we kind of know that part of it right about how how high oil prices affect um uh Affect the consumer, but let's talk about the input costs because we do have obviously, um, you know, higher metals prices and and some other inputs. How much do those really affect the uh, those sectors like the manufacturing sector, or and how much of that really is is the wage picture, right? So we got the unit labor cost data today. Productivity just plummeted in the first quarter. Real earnings are down you know, is there going to be pricing power for labor that's going to, you know, continue to, to keep costs higher? I guess that's one of the questions. and or, or will companies be willing to decrease their margins in order to keep unit sales up?
0: Yeah, I think the question you're asking is the the bigger picture. Is is this ultimately going to lead to this wage price spiral or price weight spiral? Right? Because there could be two ways of that. Uh, that input cost issue is obviously a major concern for companies now. I think the Recent earnings season, you know that that came up in conference calls quite a bit of how companies have to manage their balance sheets now with higher input costs, and that's also a question of about efficiency of companies, right? Their their margins, to sustain margins, having operating operational margins being more effectively managed, inventories being effectively managed, even receivables uh, better managed. And I think if you take that all together there's this problem that costs have to be passed on. And so far demand has, you know, as you have, you want to buy this car, there's no inventory and therefore the price of the car will remain high. You're willing to pay that price because you need that car until that does change that dynamic that the people, people do not make enough income to actually afford these higher prices as they are slowly being passed on because companies make a trade off here. Like, I have to sustain margins, as in, I gotta deliver return on equity to my shareholders or pay it out as dividends, and therefore input costs will be passed on, and that seems to be slowly happening now. Uh, at least I, I saw it from conference calls or more industrial companies that are that are doing that. On the retail side, is a very different story, right? The, the the recent inventory build up that happened um is is really now a a complex issue for retail companies dealing with inventory acquired at a higher cost but having to sell it at a potentially discount because people are not making choices now between different products and shifting demand, so demand substitution as uh, economists would say so i think that plays a role there too as input costs rise that people are shifting their preferences um and lastly this wage-price spiral or price-wage spiral, because it could be two ways, um, it seems more like that it is about prices going up than wages are are responding perhaps with some level of lack. As you say, real incomes are, are continue to stay negative. And I think that that's not likely to change that easily. You know, we would know that unionization in, in the United States is still historically low. That's one way how wages could rise. The other way would really be that it is still despite a tight labor market it's a competitive labor market Um, so i do think that there's plenty of wiggle room there for people to jump to jobs maybe make better income but also there's competition so i don't think it's necessarily a price waste spiral or the other way around so i think that that input issue is not so much the, the problem input cost issue it's more about how companies are going to or want to maintain their, their operating margins, their their actual profit margins, and make that trade off and say, now we do really have to pass on these costs, and that seems to be happening.
1: So then, then how does that affect valuations at large in the equity market, either by sector or just uh, just in total? You know, there's been a lot of talk that, hey, we we just about had a twenty percent correction from the highs, right around. Uh, people have been talking about that thirty eight hundred ish level for. Um, uh, for 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 the the S and P five hundred, we we didn't quite get there, but we came pretty darn close. You know, have have we? basically reprice the market enough where um, we don't have to worry more about a downshift. And and if you're right and and prices are able to be passed along a little bit by some sectors, is there, um, you know, in general, is that okay for the stock market? But, or is there maybe another leg lower because valuations are changing because things like real yields are now positive in in many parts of the, the the yield curve and,
0: you know, and might be going even, even, uh, even higher. Yeah, I think on that last part, that's definitely true. We will likely see higher real yields really because the nominal yield, the Fed funds rate has to continue to be moved up. It's no longer idea, I think, of getting to neutral or short term neutral. It's about getting higher than neutral. And that restricted policy setting, I think, is very clearly in the mind of most of the people on the FOMC and and, and other central banks. So all in the race to the top now instead of race to the bottom. Um, so, yeah, rising real yields will you know affect valuations in in, in risk assets as a discounting mechanism as we did the other way around um but i think on on the margins and 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 earnings um you know earnings could continue to be on, on on the top line really strong Mo- most of the companies have reported had an upside surprise at least 75 to 80 percent of companies have reported upside surprise there was some downside surprise on the bottom line i think that's is where people are worried and that's i think part of the story of that the prices adjusted down, as in the the level of the S and P index, but earnings have not really adjusted down as much of, or anything. So the P E ratio it looks more fair now, I, I guess, at this at the, at the current levels where we are, just about forty one hundred and change. Uh, but the downside risk for the S and P remains quite large because the earnings picture is not necessarily uh, being uh, sustained the way it is if, if indeed costs are being passed on, and that does then ultimately change demand. People really the, the tear away. We noticed that, that this is happening with used cars, maybe not in your case, <laughs> but it, it, it's certainly uh, going to spread to other categories. So I think that the equity markets are, at this moment, maybe somewhat fairly priced, but it also highlights that the bounce that we're in at the moment is quite fragile because of that inflation picture not uh, improving any any at any moment at least i'm certainly not in the camp of peak inflation given the price pressures that we talked about on commodities so it is the two-way force of rising real yields because normal rates have to rise plus that uh, earnings may start to erode uh, and therefore it it should see further adjustment of price downward right so i'm more of a and s p at 3,800 was not the bottom, it's probably lower, more at 3,500 or or about. You have to see major overshooting to have cheap valuations, which seem to be more fair at this
1: point. So let's turn a little bit then. So we talked a bit about commodities and equities. Let's turn to the fixed income markets. Um, you know, two major components, uh, I guess, look at you know credit and I guess at some level mortgages go into that with uh, with agency MBS and obviously rates. So is there anywhere in particular that you think is currently mispriced or, or that people should be thinking about maybe adding some risk in, uh, whether it's, uh, um, you know, wh- whether it's anywhere in, in credit or, uh, or or
0: even rates? Yeah, that's that's an interesting idea, because if you look at what happened with rates so far this year, uh, clearly the bond market had the worst losses, uh, you know, almost historically. And um, I don't think it, it dates back like like 50, 40, whatever years you know, something that's way outside of our experience to see uh, bonding these, these down, in some cases, even more than the equity market. Uh, it, we know what the what the reason is, it's duration, right? The sensitivity of bonds to interest rates is historically still very high and it would require more rate uh, yield rise to have a duration to really start to decline. But within that, I mean, there's, I think, two, two things to think about. One, credit spreads have widened, but nothing that we have seen in previous episodes, even in, in 2018, when the Fed was actively raising rates, spreads have still not really adjusted to those type of levels, let alone what we saw in, in the, say, the credit crunch from 2015-16, which was very energy-driven. That could be a way of how we get there, but at the moment the energy market is so strong that it actually keeps uh, particularly high-yield spreads in somewhat of a, of, a, of a bind, even though the absolute yield on high-yield is much more attractive than it was a year ago. So there is opportunity there because the default uh, risk of, of high yield is historically low and we're not in this environment that we're in an imminent recession. If that was the case, high yields would be much wider. So I do think there's some opportunity in absolute yield to pick up in, in high yield, say and in, in high yield, even consumer discretionary. But I think also in, in case of any of the, the sectors there, media, telecom that are frequent issuers or um, or industrials and staples, materials for that matter, um when it comes to rates itself, so we have we could see the trade on a pretty flat curve between say the 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 three year and and the and the ten, twenty year about, right? With a thirty year bit bit lower. I think that's just about that we're uncertain about the economy. So does it doesn't seem to be a, an opportunity here to get long duration. As long as that, in, that uncertainty is is high about well we'll follow recession, we we'll don't follow a recession, doesn't make the risk reward for, for being long duration clear because we know why it, it's 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 an inflation issue as long as that overhangs that uncertainty we can only conclude that interest rates actually have to go up not down until we do reach recession and we can make a real judgment about now inflation is going to get on this consistent downtrend not the statistical adjustment that we're just going through now uh, in fact core pce that came out the other day really showed again much more price pressures on the food side i was surprised by I think that also let the market reassess again, like, there's no pausing here. We have to continue until we do really affect inflation. So duration seems to be, to me, more of a shorter, underway position at this moment than, than being long duration. Yeah, I, I have to opine here just a little bit. I, I think the whole talk about a
1: pause last week was really, you know, kind of short-sighted, right? You had one member of the Federal Reserve basically saying that he thought that a pause might be possible, right? And And we could always create a scenario where, you know, the economy absolutely tanks over the summer and maybe the Fed does pause, right? Like, but, but I think that your base case scenario is that, the Fed keeps going, the question is, is September gonna be a 25 base point hike or a 50 base point hike, right? Like that I think yeah. that's the more relevant question as opposed to if they're going to hike at all, which I think it is, you know, they're almost on a you know, they're not on an automatic pace here, but I think that it would be very surprising if they stopped hiking before they got to two and a half percent on on the Fed funds rate, and probably still a little bit beyond that. Uh, is my personal opinion. I, I don't know. So, so do you have an opinion about, you know, are we pricing the right terminal rate right now? You know, three and a quarter to three and a half percent kind of range, or do you think maybe uh, the terminal rate is going to be a little bit lower or higher than that? And and that's very relevant because that will determine, you know, how how flat the yield curve gets, or if we've seen the flattest levels uh, for the market.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I I think that I come down to that we're not going to be at a lower terminal rate. You know, as much as uh, some of the non-voting doves or that are now hawks, but let's say in Evans or or um, or Bostic, or uh, that have indicated out it has to be two two and a half percent, that's clearly on the low side. It, it seems to be more moving towards the scenario of Bollard that has said now we got to bring it up to, to to three to three and a half percent, and there is still a risk of being more restrictive than that because of the uncertainty about inflation. And if you think about consumers, for example, I find them the best predictors and forecasters of inflation so far. Uh, whether you look at New York Fed Survey or you look at the conference board in Michigan, it all points upward, but some interim dips in between it indicates that we may have to go higher than even what Bollard suggests. So I would I'm almost towards the camp of that. We may actually have to go to what the market briefly priced before this whole pause saga, where the June euro dollars were about 375 implied. That seems to be, to me, more of a possibility of a a terminal rate uh, to secure that we are going to get inflation really consistently down, as Powell says, and and because a low terminal rate, I think, will not cut it this time. It's just being just too on the low side, not enough pressure on the upper pressure on the dollar, not enough pressure on financial conditions in the domestically to get inflation down. So I'm more on, on the upside, uh, Ira. It's, it's more three and a half, three, three quarters. Uh, great. Well, that was Ben
1: Emmons. He is the Managing Director for Global Macro Strategy at Medley Advisors. Ben, thanks for coming back on the FIC Focus podcast. Thank you very much, Ira. And uh, Angelo. it's uh, great to be back here. Thank you. And with that, I will turn to Angela Monolatos and our Fun Fed Facts segment. Angela, what Fun Fed Fact do you have for us this week?
2: Hey, Thanks for having me on. So this week, we're going to talk a little bit about Federal Reserve remittances. Uh, and so the way that works is any income the Federal Reserve has uh, in excess of their operating expenses, uh, they actually remit back to the Treasury Department. They do this on a weekly basis. So if we look over the uh, past five or so years, uh, the average uh, earnings that they remitted to the Treasury was actually $81 billion and the average interest expense was $23 billion. Uh, But as we know, the Federal Reserve is doing two things now. They are increasing rates very rapidly, and they are also reducing the size of their balance sheet. So we know that interest expenses will rise as uh, earnings will also, as interest income will fall. So at some point we may get to that tipping point where uh, if short-term rates do climb, Uh, Enough that the actual the Fed may start having running a a loss, but I think it's important to to note that since 2016 they have uh, remitted an average of 81 billion of earnings per year to the Treasury. So some weekly losses, um, which the Fed will use new income or in the future to pay back, may not be that big of a deal if they were have been remitting so much net income to the Treasury over so many years.
1: Yeah, I guess the the issue that people are talking about is that uh, the the you know hundred billion ish dollars plus or minus that they've been uh, remitting to the Treasury Department lowers the deficit a little bit. And people are thinking that, hey, if they're not remitting all of this money, then that increases the deficit. And they're not completely wrong about that. But um, but the the Treasury Department also has been cutting bill supply and cutting, tre- cutting coupon supply because deficits are significantly lower now than they have been in 2020 and 2021. So and they and because you do have Wages going up significantly, you actually have a a very large increase in, in tax revenue that that's helping contribute to that lower budget deficit and, and assuming that you don't get another huge fiscal spending package, um, it's not likely to go up so um so, so the remittances really are not going to be from a total budgetary perspective really very significant vis-a-vis the amount of compensation and and income that uh, that that the treasury department's getting so so people who think that this is some major budget deficit issue or just um you, you know you have to take a step back and just look at the whole big picture um and all of the moving parts of the budget and and realize that it's not that big um so, anything else uh, r- related to remittances or, or the Federal Reserve's reduction in their balance sheet, Angela?
2: Yeah, so just some back of the envelope uh, calculations here. Um, I always take these with a bit of a grain of salt, but looking at the kind of the rest of the year, we could have uh, the Federal Reserve could have interest expenses somewhere around $65, 65 billion for 2022 uh, and income around $160 billion uh, this year, uh, interest income, so maybe around. 100 billion or so of remittances, uh, potentially potentially on the lower side of that. But that's just kind of like a ballpark for this year. I wanted to do a bit of a calculation for the show.
1: Great. Well, thank you very much. That was Angelo Manolatos. He is an, uh, you're what are you a senior associate strategist with us now? Yeah. <laughs> I believe that's that's your title. So thanks very much for coming back on the show on behalf of Ben Emmons, Angelo Manolatos. I've been Ira Jersey. If you have any ideas for topics that you'd like us to hit on, or any particular uh, guests you'd like us to reach out to to talk about on the show, please reach out to us on the Bloomberg terminal. You can find all of Angelo's and my work at bi rate n go on your Bloomberg terminal. With that, until next time, be well.